has gripped human beings throughout history. In fact, some people say history, the story of history, is the story of people trying to figure out what freedom is. If you wonder who said that, I did. I just made it up for this morning. But it sounded kind of like classical or historical. Thucydides or somebody really smart said it, but I said it. It really is true, though. We wrestle with political freedom. We wrestle with financial freedom. We wrestle with relationship struggles that, and not finding freedom there. Inner freedom, outer freedom is just a real challenge. It seems like the idea of pursuing freedom is like uh, rock climbing. It is not, you know, for, for everybody. But it's supposed to be. Because if, if there's one thing that everybody longs for, it's freedom. And if there's one thing that God wants for us, it is freedom. And you, there isn't a lot of things where what we want and what God wants line up, but this is one of those things. that God wants us to experience freedom. Freedom outside, freedom inside. And the, the person of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, is crucial in you ever realizing freedom, anything like what you want. And trust me, God has greater desires for freedom in your life than you even know. So we're going to look at a story today, actually not a story, a passage, uh, scripture. If you have a Bible with you, uh, open it to Galatians chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chair seat in front of you. They look like this. And we're going to be reading from page 810. And this is, a, this is one of my favorite sayings in the Bible. It's not in this text, but I just want you to hear it. Paul said in one of his letters to a church in the first century, he said, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And it's this, it's this promise. Now, I want to I try to stretch your imagination a little bit. I, try to like, I like to do this. The, the word spirit in the Old Testament and the word spirit in the New Testament are different. One's in Hebrew, one's in Greek, but they both convey the same idea. They use the, the Hebrew word as ruach and the, the Greek word for spirit in the New Testament is pneuma. They both mean breath or wind. And it, it gives you this picture that God the spirit is the very environment that we live in. And God the Spirit is who keeps us alive. You breathe in and you breathe out. You're breathing the life that God gives us as a gift. Gives us this air to breathe in. But it's a picture of the fact that God is crucial to our lives. And without any doubt, he's crucial to our freedom. And there's this relationship between the spirit and the freedom that Paul explores in this this passage we're going to read here. And when I read it, he, he talks about three things in this. He talks about... The promise of freedom, like I said, that it, God wants us to be free. He talks about the, the, the struggle or the battle for freedom. And then he talks about the way to freedom. So there's this promise that matches our desire. But then there's, he, he gets into the nitty-gritty of, well, why is this so hard? Why is there such a struggle? And then he, and then he says at the end, it's really, really this, the shortest little sentence, or maybe two sentences, that you could just read past it and go, okay, that is like the crux where I want to take you to. That's the crux. If you're looking for freedom, you've got to get this, this last part of what Paul said. So, so God wants you to have freedom. There's going to be a battle, and you've already experienced it, but you might not understand the nature of it. And then if you get it and go, oh, I'm in this battle, so how do I find a way to freedom? Then he just gives us two simple practices, and he says, if you do this, you're going to find freedom. So let's read this passage. Uh, Galatians, we're going to start... And just read verse 1, then we're going to jump to verse 13. It is for freedom that Christ 
has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Down to 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law. In other words, everything that God says in terms of commandments and instructions about how we're supposed to live, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So he's introducing the idea of the Spirit. God, God wants you to be free, but you're struggling to find freedom. He's going to elaborate on that. But he says the Spirit is crucial to it. So watch from this point on. He just says the Spirit over and over and over and over. So Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Some people will argue at point. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousies, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So, here's where Paul takes us. He says, God... The whole reason why Jesus came is so we could experience freedom, what, what real freedom is. But he, re, he defines it in a certain way. And uh, most people think freedom is just the absence of any restraint on your desires being fulfilled. It's like do what you want. That's the freedom we think is the sort of the holy grail. You'd, if, I, I would be free if I could just do whatever I want, whenever I want. And that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. But that's the, that's the definition a lot of times that we have. And even if we don't want to admit it, even as followers of Jesus, we're, we're kind of working off that page. And we have to rethink that. Paul takes us back here, and he says, like, when he, when he talks about the law, when he says here, we're free from the law, people go, so, oh, see, we're free from the law. So we don't have to follow rules anymore. So don't put your rules on me. You ever hear that saying? Don't put your rules on me. Uh, that's a rule, by the way. And we can't escape that, can we? Because unless we live on a desert island, we, our lives and other people's lives are going to intersect. And my will and my freedom and your freedom are going to, uh, you know, butt heads constantly. And so there has to be some way through this. And so Paul says, just, just so you know, if you read the earlier part of this letter, the, what we call Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, what he says is, we're, when we're, we're freed by Jesus' death, we're not freed. We're, what we're freed from is the burden of trying to earn God's favor by obeying rules. That religion is based on you need to measure up so God will accept you. And that is an intolerable burden that nobody's ever been able to handle. And Jesus came and died so we didn't have to live under that. 
And so his death and burial and resurrection free us to have a relationship with God that's based on what Jesus did, not on what we do. Okay, that's what it means to be free from the law. But here's what Paul says in here. Look at this again. He says, uh, you're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sin of nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he says three things. He says, grace doesn't mean we're free to indulge our own desire to do whatever we want. So he's not saying when you're free from the law, it means you can do whatever you want. He, in fact, he challenges that. The word flesh there doesn't mean this pink stuff or brown stuff or black stuff or whatever stuff, whatever color it is. Mine happens to be slowly getting darker because it's spring, pink stuff. He doesn't mean that. Or your natural desires. He means all of us carry around inside us this whole knee-first attitude. In fact, one person said that uh, if, you would, if you could describe our nature, it, it would be that we are bent in on ourselves. And that, that what it means to follow Jesus is that we bend away from ourselves and up to him and say, I'm going to look to you and my, my orientation is in pleasing you and not pleasing me. That's what conversion is. And so grace doesn't mean that we're free, he says here, to take advantage of each other. Instead, he says we're supposed to serve each other out of love because love defines the law, loving your neighbor as yourself. And grace doesn't mean, he says, we're free to disobey God. So we're not under law as a way to earn favor with God but we're under the obligation of love because we've been loved. He loves us, so we learn to love out of the experience. Of and so grace gives us the freedom, and you hear me say this all the time, it gives us the freedom to love others well. That's what grace gives us the freedom to do. That, that, that real freedom is the ability to live as you are meant to live. And we're meant to love one another. We're not meant to compete with one another. And I, I mean, in, in this way of 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 two dogs and one bone, right? That's a picture of very unhappy marriage, by the way. Two dogs and one bone. We're just back and forth. And we're like that with each other. It has nothing to do with marriage, just human beings. We just think, oh, there's limited resources and, and uh, you know, there's no God. <laughs> there's, there, in fact, uh, I have to have everything I need when I need it. In fact, I needed it yesterday. And then we just enter this tug of war in life and it's so draining. And Paul says that's not loving well, and that's not what freedom is. That God, when, when God comes into the equation, it just changes the equation completely. It adds a variable that changes everything, the, the, the value of all the other factors in the equation. So if, if freedom is loving other people well, he says, though, as, as you picked it up when I read it, he said, we have this struggle, this struggle inside us. It's inside you, and it's inside me as followers of Jesus. We experience a struggle. There, I used to, before I met Jesus, there were things that bothered me, but there were things I did that didn't bother me at all. I just did them, and I was just happy as a clam. And then when I met Jesus, all of a sudden, it's like I grew a conscience. Anybody else ever experienced that? And I don't mean I didn't have any conscience before, but when you invite Christ into your life, the Spirit comes in your life. And like the conscience level, it, you know, it goes off the chart. Whatever I gleaned about life and how I should live was multiplied many times over and it wasn't like I just learned a lot of new things in terms of moral training it was like all of a sudden my conscience just grew to a degree that I'd never th thought 
about before. I felt things, I felt pangs of guilt about doing things that I'd never, it never in my mind were wrong before. And it was because someone had taken up residence inside me who had a perfect conscience and they were letting me know what I was doing was violating the way I, I should have lived all, you know, the way I, excuse me, the voice of the Holy Spirit started awakening my conscience and, and introducing what love was to me in a way that I had kind of thought, oh, I'm a loving person. Doesn't everybody try to be a loving person? I was a selfish person. I'm still a selfish person. That's the point he says in there. I'm a forgiven person now. I have a new relationship with God, but my whole history of doing things my way is still embedded in my body, and I carry it around with me, and those desires are there. Let me tell you something. I was down by the campus Last night, Bethany, my, my youngest daughter, uh, my youngest daughter just turned 30. A long time ago, I remember being 30. It was a long time ago. But I was walking along, someone rolled down a window, and I got a whiff of something. It smelled really good. It'll always smell good. You know what I mean? Some of you are going, are you talking about cigarettes, or are you talking about something else? I'm talking about another kind of smoke that's become popular as the day goes by. As cigarette smoking becomes unpopular, this other substance becomes more popular. And it, it will all, if you've ever used a lot of it, like I did, I spent a lot of time, once I discovered in high school, what now they call baked. And it's baked, the, the, it is, it's baked into me. It, it's always going to smell good. And there are other things that I won't mention in polite company that still I have memories of them in my body, and they're gonna, they would feel good if I did them right now. They will always feel good in a sense. They, they, there's a pleasure that comes even with doing things that are wrong. And so Paul says that is the nature of the struggle that all of us go through when we're followers of Jesus, that there's this tug of war that's inside you. And there may be times where you don't feel a tug towards something for a long time, and then all of a sudden you walk down the street and someone rolls a window down, and there it is right? It's there. And there's things, you know, there's private and public things that awaken you to old ways of living and thinking, right? So this confused notion that indulging the flesh brings freedom is a real hard thing to shake. And in fact, you'll just never shake it until we get new bodies, until the resurrection happens and these bodies are, the new creation is complete. And the world around us is, is created in God's image and likeness. And what the apostles realized was that the resurrection started something that's like these dominoes, boom, 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 boom. It's the last domino that's going to fall is going to be there's going to be new heavens and new earth, new bodies. And when Jesus comes back, the full power of his resurrection is going to be felt. But we can live in a measure of it because of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit in Genesis 1 who's the Spirit of creation. And he's the spirit in Revelations 21 and 22, who's the spirit of new creation. And we live between those two things. And Jesus has redeemed us, and we're living the tension of the already, the kingdom is here. Forgiveness is here. Life is here. Love is here. But we're living in the tension. It's not fully here. And so healing is here. Power is here. But there's also weakness and suffering. And Paul describes that. It's through all of his letters. We're naive sometimes when we come to faith in Jesus and we think, all oh, the mess is just going to clean up overnight. And then we just go, it doesn't. So is it, is it a mirage? Is it an illusion? No, that's reality. Because what the cross enables you to do is it's like 
like, like first responders, when they see smoke, they're different than everyday people. When everyday people see smoke, they run from the fire. First responders run towards the fire. And what happens is grace enables us to run towards the pain, towards the ugliness in our lives, and bring the power of new creation into it to begin to transform it. But it's a step-by-step, a day-by-day step, day thing. So he says here that the flesh, this pull inside you, it has man, a manifestation. It has works. And he says those works are obvious. And he, and he gives, I don't know, 15 or 16 different ones. And basically, he breaks them down into sort of categories. And these, this is not like a, one list of all the wrong things, and there's no other wrong things that are part of this. That's not what Paul's doing. He's writing to a particular people, people who live in what we call modern Turkey. And they had stuff that they struggled with. And some of what they struggled with was what people in Rome struggled with and people in Palestine struggled with. But some of it was a little different because their culture was a particular and, and, and unique. And so he says, uh, he talks about these works of the flesh that are obvious. Like I said, they're not obvious to everybody. Because the one work, the first work of the flesh, the first ones he talked about were immorality, impurity, and debauchery. And immorality is sort of the generic word for all sex outside a lifelong committed relationship between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible says is the holy boundary that's, that's, that sex is created for. And every other expression outside that, no matter how loving it feels, because doesn't God get to say what love is? Doesn't he get to define it? Or it, what he's saying, it's not our desires that define it. It's, it's our created purpose. And, it. and so Paul says that self-indulgent sex leads to destruction. But it doesn't seem like it's that bad because it feels so good in the moment. And it feels good every time you do it. I don't know, any, I don't know about you guys. This is just a secret, you and me. Sex just always feels good. It's, it, it, I mean, unless there's weird stuff going on with you know, violence... It's going to always feel good. But not every expression of it is, is intrinsically good. And so Paul goes on and he talks about self-indulgent religion, like idolatry and witchcraft. And, you know, idolatry is where you worship something, anything that's not God. And witchcraft is where you interact with, with spiritual forces and powers that are not God. And you use those powers to get what you want or to protect you without relation to the one true God. And then he talks about self-indulgent society and hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Let me tell you something. You think that hatred is bad? Everybody in this room has hated people and felt like it's okay. All of us. At one time or another, we've all hated someone and felt justified in hating them. There are, we know, groups of people whose whole purpose together is about hating another group of people. They don't think that it's a deed of the flesh. It's not obvious to them that hatred is bad or self-indulgent. But God says it is. And then he goes on and says that, that discord and jealousy and fits of rage. And let me tell you something about fits of rage. There isn't anybody in this room who hasn't had a fit of rage. Maybe you had a fit of rage on the way to church. And, and again... We can easily rationalize our fits of rage because whatever. Now, and as I've often said, the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. So there is holy anger, and there's unholy, destructive anger. And so Paul says, not everybody recognizes it. And there's a part of you that 
will say when you feel that volcanic fit of rage blowing up, I am freaking justified to be this freaking angry, right? Is that how you say it? That's how I say it. I can say it differently than that, but I keep getting feedback from everybody. John, you need to tone down certain adjectives you use in church. So I'm trying to rein it in, which to be honest with you, cussing is not very high on my list of what's wrong. All right. I really don't. I, I think the church doesn't understand taking the Lord's name in vain is not about cussing. It's not. It really isn't. But I think, you know, bridling your speech is a good thing to do. So I struggle to do it sometimes in church. You'd think about, I hardly ever cuss except in church. <laughs> Ask my wife and kids. But it is so easy to think what you're doing is justified because self-indulgence, doing what I want, colors, colors, it, it just colors everything. Think about what our society is suffering through with the political divide that we have. Paul says here, dissensions and factions. That fits in that. It just fits right in it. And don't you feel justified sometimes when you're on Facebook and you write those crazy things that I see you write? I, I, I've written a number of people in our church privately because I don't write a, I said, what in the, are you saying on your, you're a follower of Jesus. Don't talk like that. That is a faction. I don't mean you can't have opinions, but again, it's a work of the flesh. And it's so hard to see that it's our flesh that's inflaming. But what he says is, he's, he, he, he gives two little warnings that he says in this real descriptive language. Paul says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. You feel like a lot of our exchanges are look anything like loving well and they're they're just making everybody closer we all just want to put our arms and just you know start moving in unison i don't think so this is what self and the self-indulgent spirit does and it's always at work in us even as followers of jesus even with the spirit in there and the spirit if you'll listen to him he will pull you away from that you will feel a check if you start asking god to awaken your conscience you will begin to feel a check when you start to go you, you read something and you go, <gasps> and you feel the blood pressure rise. They're attacking my man. They're attacking my people. <laughs> you know, just, uh, just scorched earth Facebook post, right? I mean, the, the sound effects as you write are boom, boom. <laughs> it's like the old Batman series, biff, bam. <laughs> you know, and there's blood coming out of your computer screen of the people you've just maimed and mauled verbally. And, and you know, you read friends' page, Facebook and you feel like that, like, oh, <laughs> just like you're just getting punched. That is not the Holy Spirit. It's not. And I know I beat up on this, so I'm going to stop. I've said it before. Uh, Steve Hamrick, when you hear this, I want you to edit that out of the, the tape. <laughs> Here's another one. Self-indulgent abuse of alcohol. And I put in there other substance. I've said a lot about this before, so I'm just going to pass it. Stop getting drunk. Just stop. Stop. No, it's like my parents used to say, nothing good happens. Typically, when you're a teenager, after about 11. Nothing good tends to happen after about the third drink. Sometimes way before that. Just stop doing it. I can't tell you how much trouble I got into. I didn't drink alcohol. Like I said, I did that other thing. And most of the stuff I got into that my parents told me not to do, I got into when I was in that bait condition. Because God isn't against crushed, fermented grapes. 
you understand? He's against impairment. When you're impaired, you do stupid, you know what? There it is. I didn't say it, but you know what I meant. Don't you do stupid stuff when you're impaired? So stop being impaired. It's self-indulgence. And you are biting and devouring other people when you do it. Some of you are really ugly drunks. I'm saying that seriously. You are. I've been around you when you're drunk, and it's, it, it's, you're not in any way near the best version of yourself. And you're not going to stop doing that unless you hear this and you realize, cannot do this anymore. I'm serious. And it, our culture is just, and I was down the short north, you can't sneeze, the, 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 you sneeze and there's, you, you sneeze on 10 bars. And our culture is in that place again where drinking is just like, if you don't drink, you don't drink. I just walk around with a can of pop or a, a drink in my hand and, and people, or if I don't, because if I don't have it, here, have a beer. I don't drink. And I don't smoke pot anymore either. So if you wonder, I don't. <laughs> Just, some of you are asking that question. I'll just answer it. But you don't drink here. You need to, you know, and I go, no, I don't drink. Why don't you drink? <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> I don't know. I can't handle it. I can't handle it. My family, I come from a family of alcoholics. I don't even want to get started on the train, right? I just don't. I'm a pastor, too. It's really bad when your pastor is a drunk. <laughs> you know, it is. It's just true. <laughs> and so I don't want to be a bad pastor. So, Paul says, and, and that's, not, that's not it, just those little categories. He says, and the like, meaning there's lots of other ways of self-indulgence that aren't in the list. And he's just saying, he warns us, that will keep you from the kingdom. Keep that in mind, okay? Now, what the Spirit desires in us, because it says the Spirit has desires. He's, he's God in us. He's a person, and he has these desires. And these desires work in our heart, and they pull us toward loving well. So the fruit of the Spirit in us is love, joy, peace, patience. And, and really, simply what these are is they're the expressions of loving others well. And he says that the Spirit, if we will learn to walk in the Spirit, that we can grow in loving others well. And we won't bite and devour each other, and we won't destroy each other. Doesn't that sound like a good outcome? So it, if the Spirit imparts these desires in us, it's a gift. We're not just trying to wipe it through life. That, that there is life in us in the Holy Spirit that if we will engage Him, actually, if we'll do two things, I'll show you that. We'll do two things. We will experience the Spirit loving well through us. Now, we have a role in it, and, and the, the role kind of has sort of like two sides of a coin. Now, I'll show you what those are. So the way to freedom through God's grace is Paul says, look at verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So he says, followers of Jesus do two things. They crucify the flesh and they walk in the Spirit. Now you may say, well, I don't, I don't know if I understand what those are. And if I don't do those things, that mean I'm not a follower of Jesus. I would say maybe, maybe. If you don't get that, I'm not sure you get what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's essentially repentance and faith and, and restated. But to crucify the flesh, Paul uses this term, which we don't, you know, nobody crucifies people anymore, literally. But churches all over have crosses in them. That was a form of capital punishment in the first century. But it was a slow, torturous form. So when someone was crucified, 
nails were put through their hands or their wrists and their feet, and they were hung on a cross for days, and they slowly died. And they, it was, it was the worst kind of human abuse you can imagine. People defecated, they screamed, they, it was, it's just, you know, when you're in pain, how, how bad everything is. Just imagine that you're stripped naked, and you're in, you're in public, and people come and mock you, they throw stuff at you. Paul uses that and says, you have to do that to that desire to indulge yourself. It's a really powerful graphic, you know, word picture. Because everybody who would have read this had seen a crucifixion. I mean, I don't think probably anybody in this room has ever really seen a real execution. You know, whether it's electric chair or uh, a lethal injection or whatever, you know, firing squads or whatever way, you know, that people are executed today. But everybody in the first century who had read this had seen a crucifixion. And so when Paul said, this thing you think is so cool, which is to, to do whatever you want, that that's what freedom is, he says, you need to crucify that. You need to, and, and, and he says, if you belong to Jesus, you've already got that. You have crucified. In other words, Jesus, if you understand salvation, it's not fire insurance. It's salvation from self-indulgence. It's to be rescued from the consequences that, that you've created in your own life and, and in others in your relationship with God that come from self-indulgence. You're getting saved from sin. It's not just kind of like escape and fire insurance. Hell, if you think it is, that's just largely self-indulgent, isn't it? You're trying to, when the, the gospel of God dying in our place is supposed to awaken in all of us our conscience to look at the mess that we've made and, and that we're the architects of our own misery and that Jesus came to break the power of that because none of us can break it on our own and reconcile us to God. And he's not trying to get us to heaven. He's trying to get heaven in us. And so to crucify the flesh is we're agreeing with God and we're repenting and saying, I want my whole broken, self-indulgent, you have life to be crucified. But then Jesus says, and, and if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and every day say, I want to see my self-indulgence crucified further, or I want to sustain it, because it will continue to plague you and me, and, 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 and our self-indulgence will plague everyone around us until we crucify. And so it's a, it's a, it's a picture, you have to be pitiless, you have to be pitiless towards your self-indulgence. Now, now, isn't that a great Sunday morning thought just to take away. It is, but it, it isn't. It's like, wow, ah, hard. That's a hard word, John. That is how you find freedom. That is the only way you find freedom. And we have to say that to each other. You see that? We have to say that to each other. When we see each other, uh, it, you know, it just indulging ourselves. We've got to say, wake up, brother, friend, wife, husband, stranger. Don't give yourself into that. Then he says, walk in the Spirit. Follow the Spirit as a way of life. And so, he uses two words, walk and live, and one means that we have to passively yield to the Spirit's promptings. And, and he uses a word that means, that would describe what happened when wind blew into a ship's sails. And what happened when a shepherd whistled and called the ship following. And it's this picture that the Spirit has these desires. They are, they're powerful. You can feel goodness from God blowing into your soul from the person of the Holy Spirit. That God himself, God who is spirit, will he, he, he comes into our spirit and our, our person inside us feels goodness. It's palpable. A desire can begin to, like the wind fills the sail of a ship and moves it forward 
we, with God's presence, can feel that. We have to yield to that. But then he uses another word. This is the two sides of the walking in the spirit is we yield to that, but then we actively cooperate with it, that we say yes, yes, and it becomes a way of life. And the truth is, when you sin, it typically feels really good for a while, but there's a diminishing return over time. When you begin to follow Jesus, it feels good in the beginning, but it doesn't match how good some of the other stuff felt. It just doesn't, right? I mean, can we be honest here? Go tell all the people we're trying to get in here that, because they want a big payoff right off the bat. But the truth is, over time, what feels good, feeling good less and less and less, and you have to do more and more of it to try to get the same charge. In the kingdom, though, it starts off, and there is, there is real power and goodness and joy and love, but it increases over time. There's, there's a therapeutic dose that builds up in your body, as they say in medicine, that begins to have more and more of an impact. And so, if we, here's, here's, here's how you can do this in real time. Adam, come on up. Uh, we can't trust our deepest desires. We can't trust our deepest desires and follow them and they won't reliably lead us in a good direction unless we do this. We can't trust these deepest desires until we wholeheartedly surrender those deepest desires to God's deepest desires for us. If you surrender your deepest desires and say, God, give me your desires. I yield my desires to the Spirit's desire, your good desires. Until you do that, you can't trust your desires. You can't. But when you do that consistently, day in and day out, your desires start becoming transformed into his good desire. And then you can begin to trust the desire of your heart. And you can begin to ask God to fulfill the desire of your heart because the desire of your heart is being changed little by little. And there's even a psalm. There's a, some of you going, where's that in the Bible, John? Where's that in the Bible? Well, it's like 300 places, but one of the most famous is, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desire of your heart. This is what it means to walk in this. You yield your desires to him, and then he imparts his good desires for you and for others to you. And then your heart starts changing, and you live more and more unselfconscious and free. But you can't live in that freedom unless you crucify the flesh and you yield your desires to him, and then walk in the spirit. Let the wind of the spirit. So Spiritual disciplines are part of the way we do that, okay? There's, there's a whole range of spiritual disciplines. Reading the Bible, fellowship, uh, sacrifice, chastity, giving, forgiving, all kinds of things. Hospitality. But one of the ones that we've learned in the Vineyard Movement is worship is this powerful spiritual discipline that when we do it, shoulder to shoulder and face to face, we experience this dynamic of when we come to God and we surrender ourselves to Him, His good desires begin to just wash over us and fill us. And this little by little, glory to glory, strength to strength, faith to faith thing starts happening. But it's a, it's, it's, this is part of why Christians gather and they have a, they have a, a, a rhythm of gathering that Every seven days, Christians and, and, and God's people throughout history, the Jewish people, have met at least once a week, not more. And they meet side by side, and they meet face to face, and almost always they worship God. And you worship God by acknowledging all His goodness and glory and, and, and being grateful 
and, and thanking Him for His goodness that you see in other people. Because when you affirm other people, you worship God because you're saying there's something of God's goodness in Diana. And I want to acknowledge that verbally. There's something of God's goodness in Corinth. That gives God worship. And then God's presence starts coming and it start, the wind start, uh, starts blowing in your heart and the, the change starts happening. And probably most of us here have expected, but it's something we're meant to do as a rhythm of our life. Because it, we, we move away and, and, you know, in our workaday life and we're bombarded by a system that says, indulge yourself. Indulge yourself. You deserve it. And it's like, shoot yourself. But it, they, the world says it's so persuasive, doesn't it? It's so persuasive. It makes so much sense when you're like in, in, in wash in it. We have to come together and we have to choose to cry out to God and say, God, reorient me. And then begin to worship him. And when you sing, it goes past your rational mind. It goes into deep parts of you that thinking will never change. So we're going to sing that, that, that little simple song we sang, You're a Good, Good Father. I just want you to stand with me. We're going to close this way. I want to ask you to just do what I just said. Surrender. Surrender your desires to the one who has desires for you.